Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Løbær. Vi taler i de her år mere og mere om geopolitik. Nogle gange bliver ordet brugt til at betegne en international tilstand, hvor der er magtkampe. Andre gange bliver det brugt til at tale om sikkerhedspolitik. Og nogle gange bliver det brugt til at betegne en tilstand, hvor vi skal indstille os på at være i konflikt med alle mulige andre lande. Det er i hvert fald helt sikkert, at der er en overgang fra liberalismens frihandelsaftaler til nutidens geopolitik. Der er en konflikt imellem de to. Hvor frihandelsaftalerne, der antog man, vi behøver ikke være fjender, vi kan være samhandelspartner. Vi behøver ikke slås om kagen, vi kan handle sammen, og så bliver kagen større. Geopolitik er det absolut modsatte. Geopolitik er antagelsen om, at kagen ikke bliver større, at der er begrænsede dele af magt i verden, og hvis der er nogen, der får det, så er der nogle andre, der ikke får den. Så i overgangen fra en periode, hvor meget international politik var styret af handelsaftaler, økonomisk politik og nyliberalisme, til en periode nu, hvor handelspolitikken i stigende grad bliver betragtet som sikkerhedspolitik, hvor det handler om suverænitet, og hvor vi mere og mere bruger udtrykket geopolitik til at betegne vores relation til andre stater, er det måske væsentligt at spørge, hvad gør geopolitik ved politikken? Hvad betyder det for os, at vi nu i så høj grad taler om geopolitik? Hvordan ændrer det vores samfund? Hvordan ændrer det vores politik? Og hvordan er egentlig spændingen mellem handelspolitikken og sikkerhedspolitikken? Mellem neoliberalismen og mellem geopolitikken? Hvem bliver stærkere, når man taler om geopolitik, og hvem bliver tabere? Alle de spørgsmål har jeg gået sådan og studeret lidt i udkanten af den offentlige diskussion i et stykke tid. Og så kom jeg i tanke om, at jeg var stødt på Stefano Guzzini for nogle år siden, fordi han skrev en helt fantastisk bog i 2012, som hed The Return of Geopolitics in Europe. Det var altså inden Ruslands annektering af Krimhaløen. Det var inden de opgør, vi ser inden for den europæiske union nu. Det var inden handelskrigene med Kina, at Stefano Guzzini spurgte, hvordan kan det være, at geopolitikken er kommet tilbage? Vi troede, at vi efter den kolde krig gik ind i en tilstand af kantiansk fred. Nu befinder vi os til synlædende i en tilstand af hoppesiansk konflikt. Hvor kom det fra? Så det var for både at samle op på hans tanker dengang, på hans analyse i dag, og for helt grundlæggende at få Stefano Guzzini til at forklare, hvad betyder geopolitik, hvad mobiliserer det, og hvad gør det ved os, at jeg tog fat i ham. Good evening, Stefano Guzzini. Thank you so much for taking your time and being with us. Good evening. Thank you for inviting me. That's a pleasure. Han er professor i international politik ved Universitetet i Uppsala. Han er også professor ved det katolske universitet i Rio de Janeiro. Så er han research fellow her ved DIIS i København. Og han bor i Schweiz. For det ikke skal være løgn, så er han tysk-italiener. Så han er virkelig a man of worldly manners. En mand med international udsyn. God fornøjelse med samtalen, som følger her, hvor vi kommer hele vejen rundt i den store geopolitiske manege og ender med krigen i Ukraine og hvad der skal til for at tænke fred forfra. Perfect. So uh, let's roll. These days everybody seems to be talking about geopolitics and we're writing about it all, all the time and I can't help thinking that I'm a little bit theoretically unprepared for this uh, discourse. Uh, all of a sudden. So luckily you're here to help us understand that concept. And I must say that when I read the return of geopolitics in Europe, I understood how little I understood. Painful at first, but then but, but, but then a pleasure. How did you originally come to take an interest in geopolitics? 
Well, initially, I, I used to be what uh, in international relations is called a realist. Uh, so I belonged to the realist school of IR and wanted desperately to defend the realist school against its critics and worked on the concept of power. And then it turned out that the concept of power didn't do the job. And I, I turned from being a defender to a critique of realists. So my first book on realism in IR became then um, this critique. And geopolitics was part of the, the things that I felt were completely left to be left behind. And then I was very astonished when I started my teaching. I started teaching in 94 at the Central European University in Budapest. So for six years, I was teaching in Budapest and all these students were flabbergasted um, by all these writings, but done by geopoliticians, because these were the only ones that were translated into their languages. So Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, the Grand Chessboard, Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, Kissinger's Diplomacy, and that was um, the best one among <laughs> the three, um, were the main books. And I, I thought, how come that well, that this kind of writing would now get such a revival when, uh, in principle, everything around had shown that it didn't work. And now, very often, when we use the concept, it means something just like power politics or realism or that we shouldn't be too naive about the world. We forgot about the geopolitics. Uh, how do you think we should understand the concept in order for it to differentiate and, and clarify it to us? Yeah, I think um, it is true that normally, I mean, many people use geopolitics basically for having a short word for saying something about international politics. Um, but it does come, as you say, always with a connotation. There's this connotation of, um, yeah, that it's great power politics and this great power politics is pretty conflictual. So it becomes this power politics uh, thing. Now, very often when people use the word, they don't think too much about it, but sometimes they do. Uh, and um, the term does us resonate and, and gives this a sense that, yeah, it is the return to reality and that nature geography is so strong that it determines things uh, and that we cannot but have to adapt to it. So that makes it also a very, very, very strong rhetoric tool because you can always refer to geopolitics as if it is a kind of final trump in the arg argumentation because geopolitics tells us uh, and then the, the argument stops. But in order to take it seriously, I think uh, one needs to have a, a more narrow definition of what geopolitics is all about. And I'm developing the book four characteristics of geopolitics, two of which are shared by many other theories, two are less shared by other theories. And the last two don't need to follow from the first two. So the first one is for me, what is usually called interconnectedness or totality, namely that everything which happens in one part of the world is somewhat connected to something else in another part of the world. The cause and effect are all over the place. Well, that's interdependence. Most people will be happy with it. The second, uh, already a little bit more complicated is the idea of finiteness. The world is finite. There's only one cake uh, and the cake isn't going to grow. Um, and it, uh, this idea stems out of the early days of geopolitics, which after all came out of, uh, well, in the era of imperialism in the late uh, 19th century and then was developed later in the early 20th century, where the world was divided by the colonial powers. And at some point, there was no new piece to be divided. The world was what it was. And uh, the conflicts that we exported from Europe all of a sudden found us uh, on the other sides uh, in Africa in the Fashoda crisis when the French and the Brits uh, finally met uh, when they were dividing up uh, the continent. So there's one cake, it's finite and it's not going to grow. 
From this comes then the third one, and that becomes already more problematic, namely that there are more and more nations, there are more and more people, and there's only one cake. Uh, so there will be necessarily a kind of fight for that part of the cake. This is the Malthusian idea. So Malthus was this um, demographer, I mean, also a priest, but a demographer who came up with this idea that the resources are limited, but we have more and more people, there will be a problem with this. And the fourth, which is almost logical as a follow-up, is social Darwinism, namely that at the end, if there is limited resources, the world is finite, the cake is not getting bigger, uh, we will have conflicts and the uh, it will be the survival of the fittest. Now, of course, the moment I say social Darwinism, people will get very nervous because it ties it very closely to fascist ideology. And it was indeed part of fascist ideology. So I'm often criticized that I'm, I make a kind of straw man out of it. But I think one should be fair in that regard. Namely, if geopolitics only means that geography matters, we can all agree, but that's very trivial. And on top of it, it doesn't tell us how much it matters. So the only way for, for it not being trivial and not being redundant is to make the argument that geography primes, that is the main determining factor, human and physical geography. Uh, well, and that one has been proven wrong. So it's either trivial or wrong, but it's impressively successful exactly for suggesting this determinacy and that the people who are uh, talking in that language are the ones who really understand the world. And um, so I don't see any any way that it will go away in the foreseeable future. And as my book on realism, it had this subtitle, The Continuing Story of a Death Foretold. Yes, because I think when you talk about that, the, the finiteness of, of the cake and the interconnectedness, it's almost in contrast to, to what most free trade theories would say that, that no, we, we, that, that doesn't need to be a fight between us. Then that, that we, we can just trade and the cake will grow and grow and grow. Uh, so, so is it fair to say that, that the dominant liberal consensus of the last maybe 25, 30 years, we should be careful not to make a straw man out of that <laughs> as, as, as well. But that 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 is a kind of the opposite of, of geopolitics. Yeah, that's liberalism, but indeed also Marxism uh, used to be uh, at the other side. I mean, Marx was a very strong uh, critique of Malthus because he, he believed that um, human innovation and capitalism will push actually many things forward and will get us out of these societies as they existed beforehand. Now, I think there are, neo Malthusianism comes back, I think, today in a more intelligent manner in environmental studies, where people are more afraid of well, that the world is finite, but in, in a mm. different manner, finite. Um, whether that leads to conflict is, again, a different question. And um, even the climate climate conflict people are extremely cautious about this, because what is most important is that these are political relations, i.e. that there is not some nature given that necessarily leads to whatever outcome, that it might induce stress that there's a resource curse and so on that nobody denies or needs to deny. Um, whether or not that necessarily leads to wars or to the, the kind of social Darwinism, that's a completely different issue. So the two need not to be necessarily thought together. Yes, I think we have been living for a while in the idea that things can always grow. But I mean, even, even that with the, um, well, in, in particular in the environment, I think there has been from the 70s onwards already a critique of it, the limits of growth and the um, yeah. At the time when you when you wrote, or I should say, you wrote large parts of the book, The Return of Geopolitics in Europe, and then you edited some parts of, of, mm -hmm. of the book. But I think of you as 
as as uh, the the author of the book. That was in 2012, meaning that was uh, even before the annexation of Crimea. And I think now, if you ask people to look back at 2012, they say, "Well, we were still in this Kantian afterworld of uh, of, of the Cold War at the time." But you describe, which I think is very interesting. Uh, and not less interesting now in the beginning of the book that there was a paradox that after the Cold War, we expected a more Kantian collective identity in Europe that we would all be liberal and share the same same values and understand the the pleasures of, of free trade and free trade would lead us to, to peaceful relations with, with one another. But there were signs already at the time that we were actually moving towards a more Hobbesian one. How, how would you characterize this paradox that you saw at the time? Yeah, I mean, this is what happened. So when I was in, in Budapest, 90s, um, so I was surrounded by all this discourse on geopolitics at the very time in which it made little sense, honestly. And what I mean is not just the Kantian idea that, um, or the, the liberal idea that more trade will always be the nice one. No, no, no. It's the idea that we have moved towards a kind of common understanding of the norms, how the European security order should be structured. So in a rather more security-oriented manner. Gorbachev basically shared the understandings of what security meant and how a kind of system of common security could be organized. And Yeltsin, we are less sure that he actually shared it, but he was bribed enough to not do anything about it. Uh, so the the what I found interesting was that at the very moment in which a determinist theory, a very materialist theory, which doesn't leave lots of space to politics, was proven wrong because the end of the Cold War is all about diplomacy, it's all about politics, it's all about making us not dependent on whatever determinacy there is, but lose, using a window of opportunity um, for, for making these changes. That in this moment in which diplomatic agency showed to be not just possible, but had an enormous effect because it was the end of the Cold War, it was at that moment that we got the new journal of geopolitics in Italy, that Huntington is um, published and translated in almost any Central Eastern European country and so on, and that therefore geopolitical thinking comes to the fore. And geopolitical thinking is not moving us towards Kant, because the moment, and that is the way I called this research at the beginning, the moment we all believe in Huntington, well, then we produce Huntingtons. If we all believe that the fault line is between civilizations and we organize our politics accordingly, well, then we will produce a fault line uh, across civilization. And the same happens for geopolitics. If you believe that the state of war is the default position, then it's just a question of time when we return to the state of war. And diplomacy has actually no further means but to somewhat adapt and accommodate what is going on. And then in, in the book, you also stress that it's not an outside-in relation to the extent that it's just caused by external events. And again, I think in, in journalism, we tend to, and, and in normal discourse, we tend to assume a certain causality between external events and our, and our concept and say, well, after Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine, we all thought in terms of geopolitics again, or... or, or <laughs> Or we got rid of geopolitics after the end of the Cold War. But there's a very interesting thing in your book is that you, you investigate different countries and you say that it's very different outcomes in, in different countries after the it, four different European countries. Is, or is it five? Uh, six, four, six. Six. But the, the thing is that the same global event, they caused different outcomes. 
And, and in some you saw return of geopolitics and in others you didn't. So what in these specific kind of countries caused this? Or, or what were the, I wouldn't use the word cause, but but what <laughs> were the conditions that, that, that provoked the return of geopolitics? Yeah, so we the the research started with uh, an, a number of um, collaborators, and you're very right to stress that. So because this uh, there was a first round in 2005 uh, about about the book, and then we we redid it <laughs> uh, because in the beginning we wanted to look at different hypotheses of what would explain the rise of a particular school of thought. And so you can have ideological or ideational path dependencies. Some countries are simply more materialist or more militarist than others. You can have the political games, they're more nationalist parties. You can have the, um, the relationship to the military. You can have the political economy of expertise where perhaps most of the money is done by the defense ministry and so on. There were a couple of different explanations we heard. One of these explanations is the one which finally we decided to concentrate upon because it seemed to be the most the most interesting of all, namely that some countries had troubles redesigning who they were after 1989. So the peace produced a kind of identity crisis. They role perception of themselves, but also of their role in the international was no longer given because the Cold War was over, so everything needed to be defined. And uh, for a couple of countries, of course, that seems to be a very self-evident type of explanation. I mean, we talk about Russia, and there's, this comes up time and again, that it is about how to redefine what Russia means after the end of, not the end of the Cold War, the end of the Soviet Union, which again means that there's a there's a shift of what actually was the external event, or here, almost internal event, uh, which was the most important one. And so we found that some countries, despite the fact that every material thing was around, namely that they got new borders, they got, uh, so to speak, a new nation and so on, didn't, didn't have much of an identity crisis. And that happened both for the two cases which had no geopolitical revival, Germany and the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic became smaller and it seemed very happy with that. Um, and Germany became much bigger. Um, and was happy to somewhat adapt the environment so that they accept this uh, bigger state in the middle. We had also one country where we, we believed that there was an identity crisis, and yet it didn't develop geopolitical thinking. That was Sweden. Hmm. Because Sweden very early started having kind of discussions about what neutrality and non-alignment and all this might possibly mean after the end of the Cold War, but it didn't go very far. It didn't push very far. Um, it was all taken over by the debate about the joining the European Union um, and the redefinition of neutrality into non-alignment. Now we have a dis different discussion these days, but at the time that was one of the one of the things. So we we think that it is uh, when when the given strategic culture or security imaginary, as the literature calls it, has troubles redefining a new role in the environment, then all of a sudden geopolitics with its very easy determinist reference system can come in. Oh, we are a middle power, or we are staying here, or we, and so on. And it has been used in this particular manner also because in the disarray of the discussion, people who come up with this geopolitical argument usually come up with lots of authority for making this point. So we think that in some sense, um, there, there is no direct causality if one wishes, but there are many conditions can lead to it. But it, it moves to the point which has been, I think, in, in a quite famous interview made by Georgi Abatov, who was in his time, one of the advisors of Gorbachev, who in an US interview said that 
that the Soviet Union did the worst they can do to the US. They took their enemy away. Because interestingly enough, some security imaginaries need enemies. They need to stabilize what their particular role is, particular enemy images on the other side. It's an old idea from the peace research in the Cold War. And here it became quite visible that some countries were, were almost looking for or for somebody to take that role. The war on terror, um, but before that we had the war on drugs, um, which uh, I mean, you could see even in the United States, there was the sense for it. So I think that the, the analysis needs to take into account how this external event is interpreted, how it can be interpreted by the pre-existing um, schemes and repertoires of identity to make sense what kind of reaction there will be. And we, we see that also today. The point, of course, is that the word geopolitics, a geopolitics that dare speak its name is the phrase that you use in the book, that it, it has a certain effect, that it has a, a mobilizing potential. And, and of course, the question is, what does geopolitics mobilize? What, what <laughs> does it mobilize in, in our societies? And how does it change the discursive landscape, you could say, of, of, of the public debate? And with that, and that's the final thing in this question, with, with, with that, the understanding of the nation, of course. Ah, um, all right. So let's start with what geopolitics does. It does two things, according to me. The one is the reversal of Clausewitz, and the other one is an essentialization of identities. So let me start with Clausewitz. We all know, although we don't know much more about it, but we all know the one famous sentence by Clausewitz, which is that war is the prolongation of politics with other means. Now, many think about this as a kind of banalization of war. The guy is a, is a military, so he thinks about war and politics somewhat combined. But that is, in fact, not the most important part of it. In security studies, when people refer to this Clausewitz sentence, what they try to make clear is that war is just a means in an objective that is given by politics. So politics is politics that calls the shots, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, uh, for which the military then has to come in whenever needed, but also when not when it isn't needed. So Clausewitz insists very much in the political primacy or the diplomacy, if you wish, of the military uh, as a means of foreign policy. So diplomacy is given its pride. It doesn't mean that diplomacy can be divorced from the military, but it, the military is not the one that defines the objectives of it. So Clausewitz should not be reversed, but the reversal is that politics becomes the prolongation of war with other means and geopolitics does exactly that. It takes the state of war as the state, the normal state and politics is just a prolongation of an ongoing war that we can never avoid. So in that regard, it's, it systematically militarizes our understanding of politics, even, and that is the interesting part, even in the nineties when our budgets were going down, the more geopolitical thinking went up, the more it would militarize the, the understanding of what politics can go, can be all about. And that happened in countries, the book is very strong about particular countries and that included in the book also Russia and Turkey, where the geopolitical revival, although in Turkey they didn't need much of a revival because mm -hmm. it was very constant, um, was very, very present. So the first one is this reversal of Clausewitz, and it's a critique that the realists have been doing, uh, because it's a critique that Raymond Aron wrote about uh, during the Cold War, criticizing the United States for mistaking the military, which is just a mean, uh, as the end, and therefore getting Vietnam completely wrong. 
So when somebody says, oh, we won the war, but we lost the peace, they get it all wrong. If you lose the peace, you have lost the war. Because the only reason why people you call up people to die is that you have a better political position afterwards, not that you lose the, so to speak, political position afterwards. And yet geopolitics tends to make people think in, in the short term and think in terms of the military first. The second effect is what I call the essentialization of identities. This has to do with the fact that geography is not only physical ge geography, but also human geography. And in human geography, what the tendency then is, is to say, well, we have these kind of blocks which are given and these blocks need, therefore, they, they, they tend then to come into this struggle for survival. Um, and they're reinforced, obviously, by this particular way. And Huntington is, is a case in point, um, both because the clash of civilization presupposes very homogeneous civilizations. There's no fault line within the civilizations, which is, of course, nonsense. Um, and it has also an effect, um, an indirect effect uh, on domestic politics. I mean, the next book that, one of the next books, something to wrote quite a bit then, was about the Hispano threat uh, to American identity because it would undermine this particular vision of relatively homogeneous identity. And if you put together a militarization of the thought in politics and an essentialization of identity, well, you are in an environment which will never be very nice and in, in, in some sense makes war the almost necessary uh, component in order to deal it out as we saw whenever ethnic conflicts are discussed because ethnics cannot apparently work together and so they have to produce particular conflicts when in the Yugoslav war, there is also quite some literature to show that it's the conflict which produced the ethnic differences, not the other way around. But the effect of this is, of course, that it is interestingly that it is what happened in Europe was that geopolitics was not the reaction to 9-11 or whatever wars. Geopolitics was the reaction to peace. It is peace that prompted what uh, this kind of revival and not 9-11 because it was well before. You can do an, an gram and Google that has these where you can double check when geopolitics takes off. And um, yeah, and in that regard, it is, it, I, I, we thought it was a paradoxical finding because you would have hoped that peace would uh, have the opposite effect, but immediately it, it called up the people who would warn you uh, of the next war. For the nation, um, it is so closely connected in the past because the geopolitical starting point in the late 19th century is at the time of the rise of nationalism in Europe. And it's, I talk really about Europe um, and about imperialism. And so geopolitics is, in, if you wish, is a little bit the nationalist ideology in foreign policy, or it's a nationalist theory in, in international relations, because it says that given that they, they can no be friends, they can only be interests, and these interests are given by what nature gives us, it, it forms and forges things together. It's like a, um, a state of war thinking that will necessarily then also creep or start to define what the nation is all about. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, on the other hand, how can I say this is, this is something which I, I believe can be dangerous as well. It's not that one has to be against nationalism or nations as, as such, but in this particular environment, I think it is something which will produce rather more troubles in international affairs than less. If we then look at, at Sweden, where, 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 where you are right now as a, as a kind of, um, as a kind of case in point or, or, and say, well, the situation that Sweden is in now, because 
now there's been a major shift in discourse in Sweden. I know there are some people saying, well, actually Sweden was de facto a member of NATO for a very long time, did exercises with NATO. They just had, had this understanding of the sovereign Sweden, and now it's being formalized. But yet it is a major shift in the Swedish self-understanding. It's not an innocent step, and it's not a step without consequences. Of course, I'm curious to know what is the identity crisis that this is a response to? If we say it's not just a response to what Finland did, and it's not just a response to the invasion of, of Ukraine, but this is a major formal shift in the self-understanding of, of Sweden. Yeah, I think, and we will have to see how it plays out. So I, I think it can become, it's a little bit early to say, but it can become a major shift or it can become at least a substantial, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is true that when my students in Uppsala asked me whether it makes sense to join NATO, I said, well, you are already a member of NATO. Um, so the, <laughs> the idea that there was much to be gained was not particularly strong. I think the one thing that Sweden has lost over time, there's not a shift in its military posture, which is so strong, but one should not underestimate to what extent Sweden had a very active diplomatic agenda during the Cold War. I mean, Palme was even telling the Americans how to behave. And uh, there was the Palme Commission of the Disarmament. Yes, you might think that is all um, slightly pretentious for such a small country to think that they play at uh, even level with the other diplomats. But it had a very active foreign policy, which it put into the service of disarmament and development in the world. Now, after 89, for reasons which I've never entirely understood, um, but it started earlier, this active foreign policy no longer existed. So all of a sudden, the main things are, do we join NATO or not? What does it mean to be aligned or not aligned? Can we join the EU? Can we join the military components of the EU? Well, these are all interesting questions, but they are not questions which are similar to Palme going out and, and make his speeches or running the commissions or looking or helping the Finns in the Helsinki process or whatever else there is all about. So what I think is one of the major difficulties for Sweden is that it had lost its particular special role it used to have during the Cold mm. War. And that is as much, I think, an identity crisis, if you wish, but it's one a little bit of its own making. There's no reason why Sweden could not be um, a major mediator in civil wars, which is something the Finns and the Norwegians have started to um, specialize in their foreign ministries and so on. And, and I think that needs to be taken just as much into account. Then there's domestic politics. I mean, I said Palme, Palme means social democrats, uh, means that there's a particular package almost uh, of the welfare state, of uh, non-alignment, so being in between the two blocks and so on, um, which the social democrats have huge troubles redefining what that might possibly mean and therefore make it easily uh, attackable by people who have always been um, utterly un, unconvinced by this kind of position in, in Sweden. And that started with Karl Bildt, who made a very strong um, push against it already in the early days and has come now. I mean, the Swedes have now a quite complicated discussion because they were so eager to join NATO, giving up basically everything they stood for, that even um, th th there has been some re reaction of the old consensus or the whole uh, in, in Swedish politics to say, well, maybe, maybe we should not sell out everything um <laughs> just just now and um and i think that's um yeah i i think the change in ukraine is is one which lays bare 
um, this difficulty of redefining a role for Sweden that was quite prominent beforehand and no longer afterwards, and that invites people people, I mean, here from the political right, usually to realign or normalize Sweden in, in a manner which uh, is no longer given so much credence to the social democratic ticket from before. I spoke to the Swedish historian Henrik Baugren, you know, who did the big biography about Palme. And, and he said, well, he definitely felt sad about it. He definitely felt that something was lost, but he didn't know when it was lost and what was lost. And it made me think of this sense we had here in Denmark uh, from the left and the social democrats when we understood that immigration policies were a lost discourse. That you know <laughs> it, it was gradually, then suddenly you you, you realize that that there's that 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 it's changed and you weren't prepared for it. You're just in another place. Uh, and another country, uh, of course, that, that is very, very interesting here is, is Germany. And Germany is under heavy criticism these days for people saying, well, you were on the wrong side of history once and now you're on the wrong <laughs> side of history again. It's not even a straw man what I'm saying now. This is a criticism that's been voiced <laughs> against Germany. And, and it seems to me that in Germany you have maybe the most elaborate debate about this, these issues actually in Europe, that you have different positions that are articulated against one another, that what we, and, and I get impatient as well, but I, I think it's fair to, to say that there's actually a discussion in Germany about what geopolitics will do to them as a nation, and of course, what geopolitics will do to the rest of the world. How, how do you see this, this much criticized debate in Germany? I would start by saying it's not geopolitics which does all these things. So it's the yeah. it's the it's the war in Ukraine or the rethinking the European security order. Um, and I think the the main major issue here is that one needs to to have a better understanding of where Germany comes from. Uh, and I think I, I find it somewhat. It has been twice on the wrong side of history, once because it had Hitler and once it didn't oppose Hitler, kind of thing. Um, Putin being the new Hitler is it, of course. Um, yes, it's, it's a it's a bit strange because I mean I I find that um, I have given talks on on German foreign policy in Poland and I f I find it a bit disconcerting that seems to be this expectation that Germany has to become this hegemonic military power in Europe that takes over the role of the United States, and it's certainly something that the Germans don't fathom as part of their own role in in the European security order. Now I I think. Um, the reaction is so strong against Germany, not only because they are more hesitant, but also because, and I think there's an ideological part, um, if you compare that, for instance, with France, because it stands for a particular vision of peace in Europe. So it's all about the naive peaceniks uh, that the Germans are. And we understand this after 45, they have to, and so on. But um, but it's all very patronizing. Now they, 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 they wake up and, and they meet reality, as they usually say. Um, I mean, France has given much less money, much less military, has not yet decided even for the, uh, the equivalent of the Leopard, but the French get away with it. And I think the French get away with it because you don't have to convince them that the military is important. Um, so that's a, already a relatively militarized understanding of security. That's not the point. But the Germans, you go after, and I don't think it's completely divorced from this particular position in, well, geopolitics, the reality, and the peaceniks who don't get it. But I think the the 
the debate in Germany in that regard is an interesting one, exactly because perhaps unexpected to many people outside, the ones who are the biggest defender of this war um, come from the Green Party, which is the party of the pacifists and um, the environmentalists in Germany. So how come that the pacifists in Germany are in favor of war? And I think that's a question that most people don't even ask, but I think needs to be asked. And I think it's not by coincidence that they should ask this now, because it was already the Green Minister of Foreign Affairs, Joschka Fischer, who pushed the Germans to intervene in Bosnia. So we have the second major intervention into a European war, and it's not the first time the Germans do that. It has been already there before, and it has been done by Green foreign ministers twice uh, in, a, in a left Green, now this time with the Liberals, government. And the argument is usually a moral argument, and I think it is also to be taken into account. And it's an argument the following way. Germany as Mayat Seifus, who is now at uh, the Copenhagen University, showed so nicely in the past, had this discussion on the one hand, never again war from German territory, and never Auschwitz again. Now, with the mass rape in Bosnia, uh, something which was considered close to a genocide, Germany was put before the not so easy decision that one of these two might have to go. And the Green decided what has to go is no longer war from German territory. So the Germans did decide to intervene. And the exact same happened now. Because Putin was understood and the reaction to the Crimea inv invasion, so the beginning of the war, because the war didn't begin, didn't start now, it started then. <laughs> the beginning of the war in Crimea, the reaction was a different one when, uh, than compared to the one when it was quite clear that he trying to decapitate uh, Kiev and therefore basically getting rid of country in Europe. So this was considered of a similar high, how can I say, it was a similar um, threat to the European security norms that it would become justified, if not justified, actually necessary to go at war. But it means that the Germans, and I'm, I'm pushing it a bit, but I think that for some of the Germans, they're not going at war against Russia or against Putin, they make war against war. They can make war against the idea that you can have as an instrument of European security, the return to the gunboat diplomacy of the 19th century, namely the return to war. Even Merkel said that immediately after the Crimean invasion, when she referred to the fact that this is trying to return to the politics of the 19th century. And of course, that brought about the First and the Second World War. So there are many reasons why this is not a very good idea to go about. But the intervention, therefore, in Germany, I have no hesitation to believe that this is going on for quite a bit or will be going on for quite a bit. And is supported by the German a particular part, but by the German left um, and by the former pacifists, because it is not an understanding of pacifism, which means that never a war can be can be made, but the war needs to be done for particular political objectives, for the building up of a European security order. And Russia is understood as a country which wants to change the norms according to which European security is achieved, and where war will become an acceptable means of achieving European security. And that is what people intervene in, just as much as the defense of a country. Although, let's be honest, when Crimea happened, then not much happened at the time over there. So the discussion is really a discussion um, which I believe is an important one because the Germans hesitate 
between whatever one does now and what it might possibly mean later for when we have to think about uh, what happens after the post-truce, uh, so to speak. The discussion about the tanks, honestly, I don't know enough of the details uh, about it, uh, behind it, because of course it looks to the outside, why are you waiting so long? And what is the point of waiting for the Americans all the time? In some sense though, the Germans feel more secure having the Americans on board because it means that anything which follows now is obviously something which has, it's not just the threat of a nuclear answer, if ever the, uh, which is what the Americans have done uh, when there was the talk about possible use of nuclear weapons by Russia. It is actually having the, the instruments on the ground. And so the, the it, it catches the Americans uh, again in Europe, just as it was with the missiles uh, at the time um, of the dual uh, decision, dual NATO decision. So I think that the Germans are relatively well positioned, although on this one, at least Macron is on the same side to start to try to not escalate too much. So he insisted today, it should, um, Scholz insisted it should not be read as a means of escalation and to think about what will happen afterwards. And honestly, this is what Kissinger is repeating all the time, um, um, even in the wheelchair, even and so on from, well, in Davos, but he's basically telling people that that needs to be done. And since we probably can't get any security guarantees after the division of Ukraine, because now we have a German, it's basically a German scenario after 45. There is the, Kissinger has the idea of that they will get what they had already beforehand. They will keep Crimea and some parts of Eastern Ukraine. Um, in exchange, there will be actually a border so there will be Ukraine. So the big Putin's big objective of getting rid of Ukraine is over. And the only way to secure that, given that, well, you can't really trust Putin these days or whoever comes is to have on the other side NATO so that Ukraine would get the NATO security guarantee in order to agree for giving up parts of its territory, uh, which is a bit like uh, what the, no, it's not exactly what the German uh, solution was at the time, but it's going this direction. And I think in Germany, there is quite a discussion about escalation, de-escalation, the political ends uh, of these military means, because we, the, the, there is no way that German foreign policy can, can think of itself as being the hegemon running first. They will always multilateralize whatever is going on in military affairs, never to go anywhere alone. So that they're always coming last, uh, so to speak, um, is of course making you and others impatient because the war has started. So in some sense, you could have said, well, this discussion we could have had earlier, that the Americans are now on the board, whether that was really always the, the big aim and objective, I don't know, but it is a welcome, so to speak, uh, effect of this rather long uh, gestation of the, of the crisis. I think... It's very interesting here what what you say here because I think much of what you say, but one point is this where you say you push it, saying that for the Greens it's a war against the war, and I think a lot of our readers, you know, they feel the same. They grew up with peace movements. They grew up being against Vietnam. They grew up uh, with with the you know next stop peace marches, and some of them they they have exactly the same position, saying well now. Russia is the imperial power. They are what we used to blame ourselves for being. So, so now I'm not saying we are Vietnam now, but they are the imperial aggressors. And we are on the morally right side of history for the first time. And if we don't push back, 
then we allow war as an instrument again, and we will have allowed everything that we fought against when it was our own leaders, and we must be morally blind to who are the leaders and have the same position. But then you have other people who say, and I hear from them all the time, who say, well, where does that leave the peace movement? Is it only realists like Kissinger's? Like Kissinger, who, 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 who can... Who, is, it, is, it only, is it only cynical realists who can see an end to this war? And the question is, and I know you're not a strategist of the left or the, or the peace move, movement, but if you see this as a kind of discourses shift where per people like the Greens in Germany that used to be skeptical and pacifist, they've taken another position, which is aggression against aggression or intervention against aggression and, and totally different from Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and, 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 and Iraq, morally, politically, totally different. Where do you see a critical position of, of that position? Or what should I tell uh, the leftists and the peace movement? I know it's a difficult uh, question and it's outside your field of expertise, but I'm curious about your reflection. Well, I mean, the, the, the one thing really that the left and all parts of the left, I think, can agree, and also I think the right, is that the military is a means for political ends that we are thinking about the security order which needs to be diplomatically and politically established and assured one of the troubles that we have today is that all the arms control agreements that we had in the past which made possible the end of the cold war have been all called off so that the security order finds itself basically with nato on the one hand and individual countries on the other but neither the anti-ballistic missile treaty, nor the conventional force treaty, nor the in intermediate nuclear force treaty are still in order because sometimes the Americans directly, ABM and INF, sometimes both sides with the, con with the conventional treaty have not been doing much about it. So I think the one part which is really part of the same detente um, and um, de-escalation policies that we had during the Cold War um, that was very strong in the left, that part is about rebuilding a security order for which we need institutions, we need, yes, arms control and so on, but where diplomacy is in the is is the one which is carrying it. it it is not leaving it to the military to decide what our aims are and i mean by military events not military thinkers very often are political thinkers so it's not the military as such so i think this is important now um Honestly, for the debate, I think it's good to have both sides. So if the left would come together in a kind of Stalinist solution in which one uh, one opinion would be the right opinion, I think that um, the left is unable to do this anyway, but the, it, it will it will not necessarily be in favor. And there are ways of, of, of making people all the time remember and remind that diplomatic solutions are at the end the solutions to be found, um, that every military means needs to be thought further, that the militarization is not only something which happens in foreign policy, but can happen also in domestic politics. I mean, Denmark has been in a war for a very, very long time. It was far away, but it brought it home to I don't know how many families. You, almost everyone knows somebody who has been served in one of the um, theaters in which the Danish troops were engaged. And of course, that is a completely different discussion. I mean, how do we do? How do we deal with collective violence, not only abroad, but also collective violence at home? I mean, in the 60s and 70s, we had these toy shops where there was not a single um, cannon that could be sold because that was uh, ballistic and so on. Yeah, I'm, you, we can make 
somewhat jokes about it, but there is an, a sense in which there is a second part of a political hmm. uh, agenda, which is not an international agenda, but a domestic agenda in which we have to think about conflict resolution among ourselves and in which the pacifism plays a role as well. And uh, which doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do uh, or be con directly connected to this somewhat mixed military um, remilitarization on the international uh, level. So I think I, I think where the left can again come somewhat more together is to be aware of or being somewhat um, yeah, um, sensitive to movements of remilitarization within our societies rather than only outside of them. Well, I think that's a very good point. And I was I, I grew up in the 70s, so I grew up with all that. And I had a shock last summer when I was in an amusement park and you could put small kids in like American helicopters and then on the ground they painted Afghanistan. And I was like, no, this is everything I was taught. I was brought up again. <laughs> and it also made me realize the tolerance of military means that has been expanded in Danish society through almost 30 years of warfare. Because as you say, I think the, the numbers are like 500,000 Danes have one of their closest relatives who's been to who who've been to war now. So so being uh, anti-militaristic is very, being against someone in your own family very, very often. So so it's a, it's it's a good point. Well, the last question I always took up too much of your time. The absolute <laughs> uh, the last question is that we've been talking on two levels, or at least you've been good at keeping it at two levels. I've been mixing them up a little. The research level, uh, how 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 do you study foreign policy? And then, and then the policy level, and of course, it's difficult to keep them separate because they do play into one another. The the research also shapes understandings that will inspire politicians, and politicians are also practitioners in research. At times, uh, we refer to 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 Kissinger. So, so you, so so, I would like to ask you in the end that you mention another position in the book that you call critical geopolitics <laughs> uh, that that uh, now you've been in this field for yes since the 94 yeah it's almost three decades so so is that your own position and and how would you characterize it that's a very difficult one because you as you very rightly say there's one thing in which we do we take the the position of the observer and we observe foreign and security policy and the other one is of course that we are in the actor and we do foreign and security policy. So in the one we do theory and the other one we write strategy. And some people think it's the same thing. And if you are a perfectly rationalist and a perfect realist, then of course it makes no difference whether you use your reason as the observer or your reason as the actor, it's exactly the same. Um, I'm, I don't belong to those. Um, so I could easily say, hey, I only do the observational level, but as you just noticed, I, we have been talking about Germany and, and so on. There is a way in which this needs to translate also into your analysis of what is going on and potentially also into further strategy. Now, critical geopolitics itself is a scholarly tradition. So it's not one which would necessarily translate into particular policy strategies. It, it, is, it has inspired many of the ones who have indeed been criticizing the geographic or geopolitical imagination and so on. It has a strong voice these days, and that returns to what I said in the very early um, of the interview, in environmental studies, uh, because critical geopolitics is interested in, and I mean, they take space very seriously and geography very seriously, and that means these days it means 
um, the environment. It means the world not necessarily as a political entity, but as a natural entity, uh, and what that might imply for politics. But if I were to go for strategy, as I said before, uh, the important part is not to reverse Clausewitz, and I repeat it again, and there's an institutionalization that needs to be going on, and a multilateralization as well, so that nobody does its... Uh, and thus his policies of going alone, as we had with the US, uh, well, there was a coalition of the willing to which unfortunately the Danes subscribed at the time. Um, and the it, that is, I think, really important to go forward. And it's not particularly revolutionary. It is difficult to say that whether the strat, and so there's a strategy which is always using a military minimum, uh, so to speak, in order to assure a potential for diplomatic solutions. I mean, this is what the peaceniks, the so-called peaceniks of the detente politics people in Germany had, right? I mean, Germany had 600,000 under arms, 3,000 tanks, uh, and so on, while at the same time making detente. Brand, com Brand comes into power, makes the Entspannungspolitik, increases the military budget. So the two are, can be parts of a component if the long run is really meant to be in Spannung. But as I said before, sometimes one needs to have people uh, be carefully watching that this is also achieved and not just an excuse for getting um, a couple of more toys for the war. I'm working with a colleague of mine on the idea of prudence. Uh, realist theories, um, but not only, have very often come up with this kind of moral value of polit and political judgment of prudence. But unfortunately, I believe it is um, yet again one of these nice words which uh, suggest wonderful things that will happen. But uh, once you scratch a little bit on it, it's extremely uh, difficult to understand what exactly it might mean in particular environments. Uh, these days, I think for me personally, I cannot see how Russia's war in Ukraine can be justified. Um, and I don't buy the its uh, its NATO enlargement. I, as I said before, I think the West is co-responsible partly for having given up all the arms control uh, architecture. Um, but that is completely different from um, Russia is threatened by uh, NATO or Ukraine, therefore needs to make a war, which I think is simply not tenable. Um, in this kind of an environment, um, I think the first step is to try to get to a truce without too much escalation and that will not be an easy one because it's easily said but it's not easily done i mean therefore the tanks these days are so much discussed and then on the basis of the truce hoping that we can build up a kind of detente policy for the foreseeable future in which the border no longer needs to mean what it means now um i mean it is a very difficult one because most of the people I've been talking to would say that you need a very radical change in Russia. And that is not forthcoming or I can't see it forthcoming anytime soon. So if that is the case, then we have to deal with a situation which is a very prolonged crisis situation, a bit like the Cold War. Um, and then um, the strategies must be strategies that invite change from the inside which is what the Entspannungspolitik tried to do, or the Ostpolitik tried to do, while keeping up the necessary defense uh, for an environment which, which you have not yet the trust or confidence building measures reinstalled that we used to develop at the end of the Helsinki process. Thank you so much for your reflections and thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure talking to you, Stefano Gussini. Thank you. Thank you, Rune, and thank Information for this. Thank you very <laughs> much. <laughs>
Det var min samtale med Stefano Guzzini. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med den verdensberømte amerikanske filosof Michael Sandel. For 25 år siden udgav han en bog, der skulle vise sig at blive en ny klassiker. Den hed Democracy's Discontent. Og midt i jublen i 90'erne over den triumferende liberalisme og kommunismens død, der så Michael Sandel demokratiets kollaps længe inden Trump, længe inden The Tea Party, længe inden de vrede højorienterede bevægelse, længe inden Facebook og de sociale medier, der konstaterede han, at der var en fornemmelse af, at man ikke længere var herre i sit eget liv, at man ikke længere havde forbindelse til magtudøvelsen, at man havde fået enorm individuel selvbestemmelse, men meget lidt egentlig indflydelse på det samfund, man levede i. Nu har Michael Sandel opdateret sin bog, som man kalder Democracy's Discontent, A New Edition for Our Perilous Times. En ny udgave til vores farlige tider. Så i næste uge, der vil jeg tale med Sandel om utilfredsheden med demokratiet, overgangen til en ny tid og hvad han egentlig mener med farlige tider. Der er mange, der spørger, om man dog ikke kan lytte til Dagbladet Informationsartikler. Og der må jeg sige, jo, det kan man faktisk godt. Hvis man går ind i App Store, eller der, hvor man sædvanligvis downloader sin app, så kan man downloade informationsappen. Så kan man logge ind på den, og så kan man tegne et prøveabonnement, og prøveabonnementet er sådan set gratis. Og hvis man gør det, så kan man hver eneste dag lytte til omkring en teams artikler fra Dagbladet Information. Så hvis man ikke får tid til at læse det hele, eller hvis man slet ikke har lyst til at læse information, men man gerne vil være en del af vores univers, så kan jeg anbefale, at man downloader appen og lytter til vores artikler der. Nogle af dem bliver læst op af vores egne skribenter, andre bliver læst op af vores fantastiske oplæser. Det kan jeg kun anbefale. Den her udgave af Langsomme Samtaler var ligesom alle andre udgaver af Langsomme Samtaler, klippet og produceret af vores vidunderlige kammerat, Anne Pilgaard Petersen. Tak for denne uge, jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.